life was good. It was it was a pretty little picture. I, my dad started to sexually abuse me. So that's when life got very different. Five-year-old little girl, what are you whacking them with a belt for? My mum is as big a villain in this as, as he is. You are aware also for the rest of your life that your first kiss is with your dad. My dad had had a shower, came downstairs, took his towel off, had an erection, and I had to masturbate him. And I would just get a pair of scissors, hairdressing scissors at the time, because they were the sharpest ones, and I would just slash my legs. I knew when he got out of prison, he was coming back home. I was then um, raped at 13 by a 20-year-old. Have an intention ahead of you always, because that might be the only thing that keeps you going. <laughs> Ella. Liam. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, Ella McChrystal, you are a sexual abuse survivor. Yeah. Clinical psychotherapist. Yes. Hypnotist. Yes. And a successful businesswoman. Thank you. They're good, they're good credentials. Not bad. And uh, I don't just only assume, I know that there's been a journey that you've been on to get you to a place where you thought, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into the mind yeah. and, and work it out. So, first of all, some people may not even know what a a clinical psychotherapist is. Mm -hmm. So if you can explain, what is a clinical psychotherapist? I think a lot of people think it's counselling and it's not. So the way I work is multimodal. Um, you could come to see me about anything, but I will always go to the root. And then when we get to the root, there's tools that I'll use to fix it. So it wouldn't just be like you turning up saying, oh, I'm feeling a bit depressed and I want to talk to somebody about it. It's about how we then delve into that, piece it back together and give you the tools. So EMDR is another one that I use. So eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is about and it's specifically used for trauma, but it can also be used for OCD and all these other brilliant things that we get labeled with to go back into a memory and completely reprocess the emotional label that's attached to it. So it doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, obviously there's situations where you've got really unwell people that need a lot more than just therapy. But for those that don't need medication, and I think a lot of people don't, by the way, um, we can do a lot of brain-based work. So it's, it's very brain-based psychotherapy. It's not just about talking. There's a bit there that got my attention. So you can take somebody back to a a trauma yes. or, or traumatic experience let's just say someone gets punched in the face in a uh, outside a nightclub they bang their head they're knocked unconscious they wake up they're disorientated that then leads to ptsd and it horrifies them for the rest of their days and every time they're outside a nightclub or they're in a crowded place and they they, they feel like it could happen again are you saying you can take someone back to that memory when they was hit and change the way they feel or felt about that incident at the time? Yes. So I'm going to try and give context to that. When that happens to you, you're going to have a really hypervigilant response because you're in survival mode. And every single time you look at that memory again, so or it shows up all by itself because it's triggered by a sensory element, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, all that stuff. When you go back into that memory, you're going back into it at the time that it happened, not now not five years later or 10 years later. And also each time you recall it, you're remembering it from the last time you remembered it, not from the time it happened. So there's two things. One, you're looking through the eyes of the person that you were at the time. And two, it changes ever so slightly each time as well. So the sounds might be louder or the, you know, the feeling of the punch might feel harder. 
or you might get desensitized to it. So either way, that's going to have an impact on the way your brain works. So your amygdala, which is the danger tracker, that becomes more hypervigilant. The hippocampus, which is the memory retrieval, that might overwork. And then the front part where the emotional regulation is that would stop you going into a panic attack, that's overworked as well and it's dysregulated. So you take someone back to the memory and you use bilateral stimulation. So that could be eyes. It started really with eye movement and it replicates REM eye movement. When we go into REM sleep, that's when we do emotional processing and memory processing. So if you're learning to drive, for example, that will be stored in the left side of your brain because it's practical and logical. And if it's an emotional memory, it tends to be stored on the right side of the brain because that's the emotional side of the brain or in the middle, which is the fight flight. It's the limbic area. So the fight flight processing goes on in the middle. Now, with that being said, if you take someone back now and you use interweaves, so you bring in what they know now, and you can also be quite suggestive with it, like you would with hypnotherapy, then you can change the way they process the emotion. So it's obviously a, it's not, I mean, I say it's not a one-off, but actually a lot of people feel, and I don't know whether it's just my style of EMDR, because I use hypnotherapy as well in that session, but they just feel that they've let go of whatever it was. But it can take a few sessions, obviously. So um, without meaning to blow my own trumpet, but a lot of people will say it's just magical because you've just released me from, you know, this horrific experience with rape or domestic abuse or a car accident, you know, if they've witnessed their parent die in front of them because they're now able to apply a different emotion and they process it differently. I'm trying to think of of an example to use so we can use me as a yeah. as a as a client. Yeah. Okay, so when I was let's say 15 for the record, it could have been 14, but I'm going to say 15 to give uh, my dad the benefit of the doubt because mm -hmm. he likes to argue about the timeline because he thinks well it's it was okay if he was 15, 14 was a bit strong, but he would done a number of things to me. And actually the worst the worst thing he'd done to me in my mind is he gave me heavy duty drugs like LSD. Mm -hmm. Unless you've done it, it's very hard to explain. Yeah. But it's, it, it opens doors in your mind that you never even knew existed. And I'm certainly not promoting uh, acid either because it's fuck. I wouldn't do it for a million pound again. Yeah. But when you're tripping in a room full of people, mm -hmm. one of them being your father, who's at the time your hero, you idolise, you look up to him, and you're meant to feel safe with your with with, with your dad. Mm. So as a young man, I'm impressionable, I'm impressed by him, I'm with my friends, this is my dad. He had this big reputation at the time as Reggie Cray's right-hand man. We're all being treated like adults, we're all on acid together uh, and the party's going and then it all becomes more insular. We're all sat around a table, it's becoming more and more intense. Words aren't being said, everyone's just staring at each other. It's taken a very sinister turn, the vibe has become very unpleasant and unnerving as it is and this is the vibe that my dad would set because mm -hmm. he was a he was a dab and he was a veteran in the in the drug game mm -hmm. you know he'd been taking acid for years so he knows he knew how powerful that drug uh, is and was and then he switched on me and this was his thing he liked doing this and people uh, that listen to his podcast they'll remember a film they've seen it in like Goodfellas where Joe Pesci turns yeah. on, on Ray Liotta. Yeah. What you're saying, I'm funny, ha ha. Yes. So just like that. So imagine that you're off your nut on acid and you're with your dad and for no reason he switches on you. What did you say? Now you, you, you fucking said, I, I won't do it as he would because it 
would feel inappropriate you being a lady, but he would switch on me. His finger in my face, he would shout, he'd raise his voice, his eye contact would become more and more intense. You fucking said something. What did you fucking say? Say it again. And I'm getting more and more scared. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm losing my mind anyway, because the acid is now blowing my mind and I'm, I'm riddled with anxiety and paranoia and, I mean, and fear. Yeah. I'm talking real fear, like you wouldn't believe. And now my friends are scared because he's a force of nature and he's switching on me to the point where I'm powerless, motionless. I can't even speak out of fear. And then when he gets me to the point of I'm just about to, I don't know what I'm just about to do, fucking fold over, curl up in a ball, cry, help me, stop. It then laugh, pushes him, ah, you mug, look at you, I'll fucking have looking around the table like it's funny. Ah, oh, see what I've done to him? I had him going there, fucking wanking. It's like, wow, you sick, twisted individual. You fucking animal. So that at the time, uh, I mean, needless to say, I'm fine now. I can, I can reenact it like it is, like I did watch it on a film. But that really took a, a psychological toll on me, mm. to, to say the very least. And so... It's a very long way of me asking you the question, but I wanted just to put it in context. Yeah, which I would need. Yeah. So I've painted the picture for you. That was the, that was the scene. That was the scenario. And it disturbed me and it brought back disturbing memories. I mean, you could call them flashbacks, but yeah. they, as soon as I thought about that again, that I felt like I was back there. Mm. It's just over years I've managed to sort of heal myself. But if I'd come to you, say, 12 months later mm. and said, Ella, I've had this thought 20 times and every time I think about it, I feel the exact same way. Mm. How would you go about detaching that emotion from that act? Okay. So to give context to what I'm about to say, because I think it's really important that I do say this, as you say, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse myself and I have done this with another practitioner on myself as well. You mentioned psychedelics there. I kind of tap into that psychedelic feeling. Say a year later. Mm -hmm you'd revealed it, what what had you got, because you were having panic attacks, what had you got as a knowledge about yourself? Had you moved on from that child at that point? Blimey, no. A year from when that took place, I still very much felt paralysed by it. I hadn't made, I hadn't made, I hadn't made any sense of it at all. I was just in, I was sort of floating around in fear. Mm. That's, yeah, I was floating around scared. What did you know to be true about yourself that was good? I don't want to say positive, but, you know, um, did you know you had protection? Did you know that there was, I mean, I suppose your dad was a very different character, but... In answer to that question, yes, I had my mum and my nan. Yeah. That I, I told them what I'd been doing, the abuse I'd received and endured, mm -hmm. and so they very much went into protective mode. So then in that situation, what I do is about 10 to 15 minutes of hypnotherapy with you and I'd make you feel even more like they're with you and even more safe. And I'd actually, and this might sound like a controversial thing, but I'd bring them into that memory. So I'd say, all right, if your mum was there at that time, what would your mum have done to help? Is there anything she could have done to stop that happening? If she was there at the time. In that room where all those drugs that are going on, your dad's shouting, is there anything your mum could have done? 
she would have just removed me straight away. Right. So I would, because only 12 months later, let's say, mm. that's not enough time for a lot of people to build that resilience. So I would then get you to bring her into the memory and she would pull you out of it. And then we'd keep building on that. So I'd say to you, okay, now your mum's pulled you out of the chair and you're standing back in the room. What are you seeing? How do you view your dad? How would you have viewed him at that time? Say your mum had come in the room and pulled you out of it and you were looking at your dad do this to other people. How would you have felt at that time? Oh, horrified. Horrified in what way? Well, it just would have been very scary. I don't like to give him this kind of credit. He's the sort of person that thinks you're paying him a compliment when you call him a lunatic. He, yeah. he, he wears it like a he badge of honour. Yeah, so he, you know, he, he was crazed, nasty, unhinged. So for me to have seen that, uh, I'm pretty good at taking shit myself, but I, f I probably feel other people's pain sometimes maybe even more than I do my own because I sort of feel, feel equipped to deal with things. So if I'd have stepped back and seen my dad do that to somebody else that was at the party, I would have, A, I'm not on the receiving end, so I wouldn't have felt that immediate fear. Good, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I wouldn't have felt that immediate fear and I would have been in a better position to judge. And right. We, I was overwhelmed with fear, so I was in no position to rationalise what was going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where we'd go to. Your mum's pulled you out, although it's awful, and you probably feel more protective in some ways, the fear is less mm. and the judgment is more. And then I would grow the judgment within you and I'd say to you, right, how do, how do we grow that? How would you feel that? Feel your body expanding with the judgment so you're sort of turning into the biggest version of yourself. And we add in those layers each time. Now you might go, well, that sounds like bullshit, but don't forget we're using bilateral stimulation. So when you're using bilateral stimulation, I usually use sound and get people to close their eyes because they feel safer that way. When, when you're doing this with eyes and you're literally asking someone to follow your fingers, they're, they're looking at you and it's quite threatening. So when we do it with sound, their eyes are closed and my room is set up in a very sensory way. So lovely smells, lights, all these beautiful things going on. It's quite magical, actually. You will feel safe and you will be able to really... Get, remember, I've done 15 minutes of hypnotherapy, so you begin to feel yourself getting bigger and stronger. That version of you in that one session is now judgment, stronger, and the memory is now sat in a different place. Instead of being here in the fight-flight area of the brain, it's now much more logical. So the emotion that's attached to it isn't as strong. So the anxiety gradually reduces. Now, someone like you who was going through that at the time might take four or five sessions before you fully let go of that very visceral response. But for some people, it's straight away. And I've worked with extreme cases of sexual abuse where in one session they say, I cannot believe how different I feel because a different version of themselves is now logged in the brain in the memory and then there's lots of homework to do so I give them hypnotherapy sessions to practice and questions to answer but essentially you are remapping the brain mm. so hopefully that makes some kind of sense it made perfect sense and when you said that may sound like bullshit don't know how someone's going to take that watching it on YouTube but for me in the room when you said to me I would bring your mum and nan in, in. into the room into the memory I immediately felt very warm inside. Yeah. I actually pictured them being there and being with me. Yeah. Especially my nan, who's no longer here. And I just, I, like, I felt, cool, that's yeah. a warm feeling. So, yeah. yeah, I can see, yeah, I can see how that works. That's uh, And what, what a lovely start that was to the podcast. Yeah, it's just to give people a bit of hope. Because mm. I've done that. I've, I've been in that place where I felt like there's nothing. And there was one little piece, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, that was left for me. And it was the biggest 
it was the biggest problem that I lived with for a really long time. And then I saw an EMDR practitioner and we did this process. And within one session, I was like, great, that's gone now. And it enabled me to move on and do do this sort of stuff, like talk openly and publicly about what happened. Mm. Well, without further ado, let's go. <laughs> let's let's go back. So, where were you born? Where are you from? Northampton, which is not ever something I <laughs> like to admit to, <laughs> but it's true. What's wrong with Northampton? Um, it used to be a lovely town, but it's been destroyed over recent years by various politics, and it's a bit of a shithole now. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's got potential. It could grow again, but like any small town or big town, even. They've been destroyed over the last 10 years by various different things that have happened in the world, which we won't go into now. Um, so it's lost its sparkle. So you went to school in Northampton as well? I did. Grew up, your whole childhood was, was Northampton. Yes. And what was your home life like? Um, so for the first, I'm going to say seven years, although I, I have since remembered things that have probably uh, warped that little bit, but up until recently, the first seven years, I was really very happy. I lived in a, a little terraced house in, in a town street. Everybody's doors were open. You'd walk in and out of everybody's house. Everybody was auntie this and uncle that. Um, my lovely nan lived just across the way. Um, and you could go out, you know, you'd be five, six years old. And although it was literally the town centre, you could go out, you could play brother and sister, older sister, younger brother. Um, mum and dad um, and generally I felt like life was good it was it was a pretty little picture um, and then things started to change around seven years old we moved house and my nan died and um, I, my dad started to sexually abuse me so that's when life got very different and I didn't see it coming now, I know that sounds crazy because you think people do. Retrospectively, I could see that there were issues, but at the time, it was a shock. Now, that might sound crazy to people. Of course, it's a shock to be sexually abused by your dad, but you might may have had this experience. I don't know. My dad wasn't the type of dad that did that kind of thing. You know, he wasn't a thug or a gangster. He wasn't a bad guy. He worked at MFI, selling furniture and kitchens. You know, he was just a normal bloke. So really there wasn't much of a, a lead up. I wasn't, I thought I hadn't been living in fear. I actually had the memories that resurfaced recently, but um, everything was good. So it came out of nowhere. And I think dealing with moving house, I've, I'm a very um, rooted person. And now I can, I can see the impact of a child having to move schools or move house to the point where I, I work with people now. It's a question that I ask them, you know, have you ever had to move house or change schools? Because that can be really difficult for kids. Um, but I left a school that I loved, had to start a new school, new friends. And the, there was a period of time between moving houses where we had to stay with friends. And so we didn't have a house, you know, we were staying in their house. And I put on so much weight. So I went from being this really cute little kid to being this fat little dumpling, starting school, getting bullied straight away because fat kids get bullied, let's face it. And I had no friends. And my nan had died, who I, I loved my nan. Um, and she, you know, so everything changed all in one go. And then the sexual abuse happened as well. But my experience with, with any kind of deviant 
narcissistic sexual predator. Mm. They don't just go straight in for the kill. There's the subtle touch of the leg. Yeah. There's the inappropriate touch in the bath. That they, they sort yeah. of push the boundaries until they think, well, actually, this is probably a good time to to, to strike. So, but did you not? Have, was there not a build up like that? No, and I guess it's only when I say that's where I say actually there probably was, and there definitely was, but I hadn't remembered it. It's only recently that I've remembered it because I think I didn't want to remember it so a, a series of events happened about eight years ago where I stopped talking to my mum and dad and over that eight years more and more stuff had come up because I, I, I'd i been con the other part of the story is before I answer that question is my mum stayed with my dad so once he you know admitted and he did admit what he did once I'd revealed it he went to prison came back out and moved back into the home and so my mum is as big a villain in this as, as he is because she conditioned me to to accept what had happened and conditioned everybody else around us all of her friends mm. so we so it ella was the problem not not him i was the problem and i believed that for a long time so like i say it's taken me till now getting away from them both they're still together now to be able to understand that my dad always used a belt to punish, and I know that's not abnormal of that age. Um, some people would say, oh, yeah, I was belted or, you know, whatever. And most people would say, oh, no, that's not actually that normal. So if you've been belted, you go, oh, yeah, that's just what happened back then. Mm. But so we, so there were times when, you know, punishment was quite harsh. I think so anyway for a little kid, you know, five-year-old little girl. What are you whacking them with a belt for? What the, what the fuck do you need to use a belt on a little girl? It's just obscene so those things were happening and then like you say just the little touches here and there and this is really graphic but going to the toilet around five six years old your dad doesn't need to help you wipe yourself no. so it's those things that now i know ah that was the beginning of it there were times when i did not need you to do that thank you very much if you're four five six you don't need you know you don't need that much invasion let's put it that way so it's only looking back at it now that i go there were those things but they were they weren't very often and you could almost normalize it you could and i think even my mum could normalize it even though she says she didn't know what was going on i think there were things that you could go well it's probably just you know making sure she's clean but actually i remember it being a lot more invasive than just making sure I was clean. So there's those things that, that were there, but it was very normal at the time. Mm. And that's why I didn't see the next bit coming. You don't know any different at, no. that, at that age. No, that's the thing. And it's good that you mentioned that because things get normalised in different households depending on who the dominant figure is. Mm. And if there's the father's in the house or the stepdad and all of a sudden he's taken the role of being the being the stepdad the ever so helpful i'll do that i'll i'll take it to the toilet and then the mum starts to think that's normal it's nice that a fully grown woman that has that was that child uh being wiped by their dad yeah. at five six years of age yeah. it's good if someone hears this yes. in case that's going on in their household to think actually yeah, that isn't normal. Yeah. That is a bridge too far. Yeah. Let's rein that in. Even if it's perfectly innocent, it's it's odd. Yes. And be mindful of that. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you can't think everyone's a predator all of the time because that's really not healthy. Mm. But if there's a series of events or something seems to be happening more often than it needs to, you've got to be, you've got to have your wits about you because sexual abuse is far more rife 
than people want to admit to. You know, I think the statistics of one in four children or one in four people, I think it's wrong. I think it's much more than that. It's just that most people don't talk about it. Hence the reason this is an important conversation. Mm, yeah, and I've got nothing but respect for you for being so open and because I know where the next bit's going to go. Cause yeah. It's, uh, in your own words, how did how did the first sexual assault happen? Where were you? What was the build-up? How, how did you feel? Roll with it. So I was, so we had moved house, like I say. My mum was in the theatre, so she was often out doing rehearsals or, you know, doing the show. And um, I can remember we were at home, it was the living room, my brother was about two metres away from me watching cartoons on the telly. And my dad sort of said, come and sit here in between his legs. And I was a bit like, I've never done that before. So I, I, I didn't want to, but I thought, oh, okay, that, that's nice to have a cuddle with your dad. And then um, he put his hand down my top and he just started to basically rub my nipples. And I just remember this hot feeling coming over my face because I knew it was wrong. People say um, I wasn't, I didn't know it was wrong, but I, I knew, like I, I absolutely knew it was wrong and, and I uh, froze. I didn't say anything. One, because my brother was in the room and I just knew that he shouldn't see this. I mean, I'm, I'm seven, eight at the time, you know, and I'm aware of knowing that he shouldn't see this. Um, so I think that's where I've had a quite a different experience. I was always aware that it was wrong. I never thought for one second that that was normal. Once it got past that, you know, the beltings and the, the wiping me in the toilet, whatever, I knew that was that was wrong. Um, and it seemed to go on for ages. I couldn't actually tell you how long it went on for, but it was very um, sensual. You know, that kind of, you you don't, there's no mistaking that you don't touch a child like that. And then that was it. So that was the first occasion. So the next time it happened, it was give us a kiss and then proper trying to kiss me and just feeling again frozen and not being able to do anything about it, but knowing, I mean, I remember just, you know, the heat that you get all over your neck and your chest and your head. So the fight flight is definitely trying to kick off, but you can't do anything about it. So this is, this is when I started to realise I don't want to be on my own with my dad. I don't want to be on my own because every single time I'm on my own with him, he's going to do something. And every time he had the opportunity, he did. And sometimes it was just that. But if I'm going to be completely honest with you, the kissing thing for me is one of the worst. Oh, I get that. Yeah. That's like, very, it's personal. I, I've never been able to understand why, because some of the other stuff that happened is on paper worse. But it's just, it's there in your face. I totally and utterly get that. Kissing is, it's extremely personal across yeah. the even two, Even two people in love kissing, that sort of really seals it. Yeah, it does. It's powerful. Yeah, it is, mm. yeah. And then, you know, you, you are aware also for the rest of your life that your first kiss is with your dad. Mm. You know, you don't have that first kiss memory in the same way other people do. And that's the sort of thing it robs you of. It's not just the act itself. It's as you get older and you look back and people say, oh, who was your first kiss with? You, you in your head, you go, oh, my dad, you know, and, and that's the hardest bit. It takes, you, it takes so much away for the rest. Of you. you haven't got those normal memories that other people have got. Um, and obviously it changes the way you see your dad forever. And you will know that more than anybody. Your dad is no longer your dad. Your dad is in maybe two or three parts. So you've got one dad that you love. And I still love my dad. 
you know, because there's a part of him that I love. And there's always a sense of, you know, he, he may hear this and probably will. I've written a book, I've, I've spoken openly many times, but it's always at the back of my head that the dad that I love, the version of him is going to be sad and hurt that I'm doing this. But then the other version of him, he doesn't give a shit. And if he does give a shit, he's got a funny way of showing it. So you have to always be able to come in and out of those parts and understand those parts of yourself when you're having those feelings. Because I think it's the, the child that has that, I love my dad, not the adult. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, it makes makes perfect sense. Yeah, I uh, I, st I still love my dad, and I got to the point where so when my dad would stick his tongue in my mouth, probably different to how your dad did with you, but he he was still putting his tongue in my mouth. That's still bizarre. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not normal behaviour. But it got to a stage where I would then initiate that. Mm. Not so much. It wasn't in a, in, a, in a sexual or a romantic way. It was just, I just thought it was something that you do. Playful. So I would, I would then put my tongue in his mouth, yeah. which later on down the line, he used that against me. Used to put your tongue in my mouth, is what he would say. It's like, why on earth do you think I'd done that? Yeah. I obviously thought it was acceptable and the thing to do because you showed me that was what we do. Monkey yeah. see, monkey do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever reciprocate the kiss? No. I just knew it was mm. wrong. I knew, because it wasn't done in a playful way. It was not done in a playful way. It was very sexual. It was obvious to me. And I think kids, this is going to sound really odd to some people. Kids are quite sexual. They do understand the difference between sex or sensual mm. and playful or um or just a normal dad kiss. You know, like David Beckham often gets a bad rap for giving his daughter a kiss on the lips. And I just think that's stupid. You know, you can, I say you can tell, you can never tell, but it appears that this is a very normal affection between a, a father and a daughter. To me, anyway, some people would disagree with that and that's fine. Um, but the, the types of kisses my dad would give me were definitely not that. Um, although prior to that, there may have been those times where it was quite normal. But but when that started, there was definitely no mistaking. It was not playful. Um, so I just had this awareness. And that was probably, in some ways, a bit harder. Because I knew what was coming. Did it escalate beyond kissing? Yes. So how, how far did he take it? Well, there was a couple of occasions that I'll talk about, which aren't too difficult to talk about. So um, there, there was penetration, but never full-on rape. So penetration with fingers and, you know, that kind of thing. That was horrible. And I just remember thinking, this has got to stop soon because I, I can't keep doing this. Again, fully aware mm. at that point that this is, this is what, what's going on. Why is this happening? And I hated him at that point because he was a monster now. You know, the kissing was one thing, and I told you that's actually harder for me to recall now. Because, of course, those are the things that you do in normal relationships. So it's stained forever, because sometimes you'd be having a really intimate moment with somebody, and then you have a horrible flashback. And I used to have really visual flashbacks, and there's difference. You know, you could have a memory flashback, where it's more like an hallucination. So the person I'd be kissing, I would actually open my eyes and see my dad. And then I'd have to be gone you know shake it out sort of thing so those are the things that that stay with you for some people and then um when I was a kid I broke my leg and um I broke my leg quite severely so I, I was in plaster from hip to toe and I couldn't walk and I obviously wasn't at school 
and um, my dad had had a shower, came downstairs, took his towel off, had an erection and I had to masturbate him. And that was, again, one of the, for me, the worst things. So there was never full on rape um, with my dad anyway. Later on, there were occasions with a couple of people that, that was, but that was as far as it went. So I would have to do sexual acts on him and he would do sexual acts on me. Um, and sometimes people say, how many times did it happen? I don't know. It was that many times. I don't know. I've lost count. Um, so it, it, it was very, it was a very apparent to me that this was sexual abuse. And that's something I keep repeating because I think we don't give kids enough credit for knowing. It's just that they don't know how to say it. How did he have this? How did he have you under such a spell? Was it, was you scared that he'd react a certain way if you didn't do things to him or did he do it in a way where you'd feel embarrassed? It was you, embarrassment. If you didn't do it. Yeah, it was embarrassment. So a couple of things. Yes, he he was, uh, uh, you know, he would use harsh punishments and there was a lot of um, mental torture with that as well. So, you know, you'd have to wait. You knew you were going to get the belt. But even if I hadn't done something wrong, if say, say if my brother did something stupid and he wouldn't admit to it, it, it didn't matter whether I did it or not, I was going to get the belt. So there was a lot of fear there. But when it came to the sexual abuse, I think the mixture of knowing that I could be punished at any time, he could switch, but he did it in a really loving way. And so I was, kids would say now, they would, they'd have the ick, they would cringe. Mm. But it was done almost as though, this is, this is just a loving, this is because I love you. And, um, and don't tell your mum because she's never going to understand. So I would feel my stomach would flip. You know, I'd feel sick. Children don't know how to tell anyone. The only thing I can say is you feel ashamed and you feel this is your dad. If I tell on my dad, my whole family's blown apart. He's going to go to prison and my mum's going to hate me. My brother and sister are going to hate me. Everyone's going to think I'm a dirty little slag because... The, and I knew that. This is what I mean. They had this really almost like a an adult living in my head. And I knew what would happen if I said anything. I knew my life was going to change. I didn't want my life to change. I'd struggled enough moving school. This is why I started telling that story about how moving school and moving house and losing my nan was so hard. I, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want the change. Mm. I just want him to stop. And maybe he'll just stop. But... My mum, like I said, was always out and I, it was increasingly difficult because I would just have, you know, you spoke about fear earlier. That started to be like, this is going to happen again. And I, I'm, I'm just a kid. What, what am I supposed to do? I can't say anything to anybody. So I did tell somebody once and she won't like this because she always says, I don't listen to any of your podcasts because... I get so angry about what happened to you. And I said, don't worry, I'll never talk about this stuff anymore. <laughs> I'm going to worry. So she tunes in and here I am talking about it. Um, I told her what was going on. I just wanted someone to know. I wanted it to stop. But I didn't want anyone to tell anyone. Does this make any sense? I wanted someone to know, but I didn't want them to do anything about it. Is that because you were still trying to protect your dad? In a yeah, way? definitely. So I told her. She then told her mum. And her mum confronted me about it. And I basically said, oh, it's just a joke. And her mum told me off. And I then just thought, right, that's it. That's it. That's my chance gone. Because I should have just said, this is happening. 
and that was it. So I just thought this is what I'm going to live with now for the rest of my life. And I, I, I kind of got used to it, but I kept a journal and that, that sort of leads on to the next bit. So I kept a journal where I was writing, not everything down, but just like, oh, it happened again last night. I didn't sleep, you know, just really basic stuff. I cried myself to sleep. I'm so scared, all that kind of thing. And it was in my school bag. And um, I had a friend that I used to play computer games with. I was the fat kid. I didn't really, you know, boys and, and Ella did not do anything other than play computer games. <laughs> um, and I used to play computer games with him. And I just thought, actually, maybe I could just show him that. He's not going to tell anybody. Like, he's more interested in the Commodore 64. He won't even understand it. But if someone knows, and, and, and then I, I can maybe say sometimes I'm scared, then that, that will be enough. But I gave it to him and another boy snatched it out of his hand. And it was in the classroom. And within seconds, everybody was reading that journal. And I just ran out of the class into the toilets. And I kid you not, it felt like the whole school came into the toilet with me. It was, it felt like it was, I was in the cubicle and all I could hear was noise and people saying my name and dinner ladies coming in because it was just before lunch, shouting, get out of the toilets, all that sort of thing. And I, I just remember thinking, I'm not leaving. This is where I'm not leaving this cubicle. And somehow I managed to get out and that was it. It was all taken out of my hands. And coincidentally, it was my dad's day off. That was not the intention because remember, I just thought I'd give it to him. He would go, oh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> and that would be it. Mm. Um, and he was arrested that day, but he, he did admit to it straight away. When he would get you to touch him, because mm. I, I mean, by the sound of things, the, the touching of your chest, the kissing, the penetration, then you're doing things to him. Did he take it to the limit where he would actually finish? No, that's a very good question, actually. No, I think, I don't know whether he could sense, this is probably too graphic for a lot of people, but when you have to masturbate someone, there's a there's a technique <laughs> for it to be pleasurable, I guess. And I, I was shaking. I just remember, you know, I couldn't stop my hand from shaking. So I think after a couple of minutes, maybe two, three, it felt like a lot longer, but I'm sure it wasn't. And I, obviously I couldn't look any, you know, there was no, I couldn't connect to what was happening clearly. I think... I think that was enough. And he would tell me what to do, like do this, do that. But I just obviously fought against it, not consciously, but my body wouldn't, my body just wouldn't let me do that. And then, and then he would just leave the room and I've got a broken leg, remember, I can't go anywhere. And I'd just sit there like, what the, what, what am I doing? I don't know what to do. I can't go anywhere. I can't say anything. What am I supposed to do with this? And I'd just sit there. It felt like a, a 10 ton lump of concrete on my chest the whole time. So I don't think he was ever doing it for gratification. Although obviously that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. I think it was power. My dad had been sexually abused. I think it, I think he'd been assaulted by a guy in a park. I don't know the severity of it. I do know that um, my mum had told me this. He's never told me this, by the way. He's never talked about it ever. So I'm sort of taking it out of his hands now. But that that is what she'd said. Um, and I think he was traumatized by that and in psychotherapy I use a, a method called IFS which is about parts therapy and um, I've got a keen interest in sexual abuse for obvious, obvious reasons and the part of the abuser that comes forward is the part that's trying to protect their victim so I think this is all about becoming the predator so he's no longer the victim 
not about sexual gratification. Mm. Because he's not the type that would feed me drugs and, you know, I mean, he was, you were saying about your dad shouting, my dad would do that as well, actually. So there is a narcissistic side to him. I'm probably playing it down a bit, maybe, because it's it's been able to sit easier in my head that way. But um, the couple of occasions, like, if someone told me a joke and they had a swear word in it, he'd go, well, tell me what the swear word is. And I'd say, oh, no, I, I don't want to. I'm not allowed to swear. And he'd go on and on and on and on and on. And then I would eventually tell him, because now he's given me permission like 30 times to be able to say what the word is, and then he'd shout at me and send me to my bedroom. So there was that element of it as well. Mm. There, there were those, there was the fear of the physical punishment, there was the narcissistic playing games with my head, and there was the sexual abuse. But I don't think I ever, I couldn't ever piece it together that way. I, I just knew that I was scared of him. And so were a lot of people, you know. He was a dark energy he, at that time he was he wasn't a nice person and that's what i mean i feel like it was the predator that came forward to protect his victim because he's from glasgow he's from uh, uh, he was brought up in paisley and back then if i mean he's 75 now my dad if you were abused you didn't get the mirrored glass you'd have to go and point to the man that did it to you mm. and i just think at the age that he was at the time where his testosterone was forming. This is why a lot of boys are more likely to sexually abuse because when their testosterone's developing, that's when they're growing their sense of power and manlyhood. If that's taken away and you're a victim and your power's been taken away from you, your brain is going to adapt differently to the boy that hasn't had that experience. So, and there was other complexities within his family as well, you know, which is too broad to go into today. But, he then had to identify that man and I just think he felt powerless and I think the structure of his brain changed and that was his way of being the predator. Because actually a lot of men that do that, they're not like that with other men. They, they, they probably fear other men. So this is their way of, of doing it. So this bit I'm really interested in because now in my mind, I want this man in jail. Yeah. So he got arrested. Yeah. So the police turn up at the door and was you there? No, I was. I, I had been kept at school for hours. So I'm in the head teacher's office, stuffing envelopes. I don't know why, but there was nothing else for me to do. Um, he was removed from the house, admitted what he did, wanted to kill himself. It's that, oh, you know, poor me, I want to die. Um, and I know that the police handle this type of case in a certain way where they they are quite sympathetic towards the paedophile or to, towards the abuser because obviously they want them to feel safe to open up. Mm. So from what I know, that's how it was handled. Uh, I didn't have to um, do too much more with the police after the original statement and then you have to go and have an internal exam, which wasn't very pleasant either. Um, so after my bit, the medical internal... And this is what people don't know as well. If you've been penetrated... That little girl then has to go and, and be. I had to be did, digitally investigated by a by a female doctor after that to check for damage, I guess, because um, I can't imagine what else that'd be. Not you know it's things like them putting the gloves on. You never forget that. No. The gloves, knowing what's going to happen, being told it's, it's being abused again because that child has to go through that. I don't know if they do that now, actually, but that's what I had to go through and be prodded around my stomach and around my chest. Um, so they're the things that you have to go through. Um, 
So yeah, I didn't have to do too much more apart from the statement that it took, I think it was about four hours. Bear in mind, I'm 11 at this point. So four hours with police asking you over and over again, can you just tell me that a bit again? Can you just tell me that a bit again? My mum was in the room, which is why it's quite shocking that she stayed with my dad, because she heard everything. You know, she heard all the details and that ruined our relationship forever. Um, and then he went to, uh, I think it was Bedford first, um, while he was held on remand. And then he went to Little Hay, which is a sex offenders prison. Um, but I was told, I don't know if he knew that. I mean, he must have known that. But I think I, I used to say to him, well, what's he told other people he's in there for? What are we saying he's in prison for? I don't know why we did this, because everybody knew. Remember, this came out of school. What, what year was this? Um, 1989, I think. 1989, yeah. So, long time ago. So... He got remanded. He got remanded. Straight away. Straight away. No bail. He confessed to it, which is, which is great. Uh, yeah. Do you remember how you felt when he'd confessed and there was, there, was no, there was no chance of anybody calling you a liar because he said you were lying? Yeah. Uh, complete guilt. That's the only thing. And that's the la that was the last piece of the puzzle. Do you remember I said that was the bit that I couldn't get rid of until I had EMDR? The guilt. Yeah. Now it's, it's completely my fault. My dad's going to suffer because of me. This is when that love for my dad took over. Like, now I want to protect him. I want to take it all back. But I couldn't because it was in my journal. Uh, there was no chance of me saying anymore. And he'd admitted to it. And he'd admitted, so there was, uh, even if he'd admitted to it, I think if it hadn't been in my journal, thinking of the way I was at the time, I think I would have said, oh, he's just doing that because he doesn't want me to get into trouble. And I would have retracted it, but I couldn't because it was in black and white. Not all of it, because obviously the police go into all of the detail. Um, and I didn't write in detail. I don't think kids do write in that much detail because they don't know what they're even talking about. But... Um, yeah, it was total guilt. And the first thing my mum said, the police took me home. The first thing my mum said, or the first thing I can remember her saying, I should say that just for clarity, is I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay married to your dad. And I remember thinking then, sorry, what do you mean? You're not, you don't think you're not, of course you're not, you're not going to stay with him, surely. And I remember thinking now, I've got, he's going to come home. Because I, I didn't, I didn't really understand the prison thing at the time. I'm 11. Mm. I, don't, I don't know that he's going to go to prison. Maybe he's just not going to be allowed to live with us for a little while. But then when my mum said that, that guilt quickly turned back into dread because, oh, he's going to come back. Mm. So I, I, I sort of went between the two for a little while, like knowing, and I did know, I knew when he got out of prison, he was coming back home. So after he was on remand and he, he'd done a bit of jail hopping, yeah. do you remember the trial? Uh, no, I don't actually, and I don't know if I've blocked it out. I do know, um, I do know there was a lot of stuff going on, but I think because I was so consumed by this is my fault, I think I ran away from it. I mean, my brother, who I can't blame him, he was only young at the time, but he would be like, it's your fault, my dad's been taken away. My sister would be like, it's your fault, mum and dad's marriage is broken. So I, I was just in, and my mum was obviously, it's important that we keep the family together, your brother and sister and all of this stuff. So I, I, I think I've just blocked that whole bit out. So you don't remember even if you were called in as a witness? No, I don't remember any of it. And you'd think that I wouldn't remember the other stuff, but that bit, I, it's just a blur. It was sort of damning for him anyway, wasn't it? If it's all there in writing in your journal yeah. and the fact he's confessed to it, yeah. they may well have thought, well, we don't need to put her through any... You're probably right. Don't need to put you through any more trauma. He's confessed to yeah. it. It's a guilty verdict. And 
what was his sentence? I, I don't know that. And, I, and I've been actually struggling to get a hold of the paperwork recently, which is another part of this story, which is quite interesting. Um, I, I think he did. I think he did 33 months in total. Just under three years. Yeah. OK, so back, back then in the 80s, two thirds, say probably got five years. Something like five that. Five and a half years. It wasn't very long. I know it wasn't long because when I've told people that before, they've like, what? That's how long he got. I think it's still the same now. Depending on the level of um, sexual assault. Level of violence, level of force, yeah. level of threats. Yeah. yeah all, all of that gets to... taken into account. Mm. Did you visit him when he was in jail? Yes, which was horrendous. I didn't want to. Um, I was writing to him because obviously my mum, he, he wanted to have, he wanted to be a dad still. He, he like I said, he's not, he's not. How do I say this? Because I don't want to be like letting letting him off the hook, but I'm just going to be honest. He's not a horrible man. He's a nice man now. Um, but then there's a horrible side to everybody. But, you know, that that's something that people can't get their head around. That I'd still say that now. But he would write letters to me. And I, I remember writing letters back saying, you know, so-and-so at school is picking on me and this is happening and we're falling out. And he'd be like, oh, you know... Friendships can be tough. And these were the sort of letters I was getting back from him. Wow. But that was enough for me at the time. And then my mum was like, you really need to come and see your dad. And I was 12 at this point, And I was like, I don't want to go. I kept saying, I don't want to go. Don't want to go. Don't want to go. Don't want to go. And then his mum visited from Paisley. And um, she wanted to see him. And I think that was the first time I went to see him. But I just remember... I kept saying, I don't want to go. I feel ill for my mum. I was like, you have to go. You've got to do this. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'll go. And I, I remember then, um, and I've been a master at this my whole life, just putting on the mask and be like, oh, hi, Dad, and hope you're okay. What, who have you got friends with? And he'd show me who he was friends with, and he'd say, that one's in for fraud and this one's in for that. I now know that that can't possibly be true because it's a sex offender's prison. Um, and and I, I would be like, okay, yeah, this is fine. This is good. We're friends again. And when you when you embraced each other, when you was on these prison visits, did you would you cuddle him? Would he kiss you goodbye? Yeah, my mum's there. His mum's there, and and I'm, again, I'm aware of this. I'm not I'm not unaware. Like I was always aware of what was wrong and right. So I was aware that this was weird, and I was aware also of my friends at school. They all knew. What are you going to go see your dad for? Because oh, I've got to. I had to take time out of school to go and see him because you go with during the day, don't you? You don't go, well, I did. I went during the day. And and also at the time, there were boys at the school that would be like, oh, God, you stink of sex. You slag. You love having sex with your dad. Kids are horrible. Kids are cruel. They are cruel. Mm. So they were doing that. And then when I was going to see my dad, yes, because you love it, you're going to go and have sex with him, aren't you? And I would be like, okay, this this isn't fair. I don't. But and then I became a bit. Um, I was a bit of a fighter after that. That's when I started to become a little bit aggressive, and the monster in me started to come out because I was like, fuck you all. You you want to say that? I mean, I stabbed someone in. The... <laughs> We're friends, so he won't mind me saying it. a boy called Barry. That shows how long ago it was because no one's called Barry anymore, are they? <laughs> But a boy called Barry used to call me a fat slag, da 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 da. I got a screwdriver out of my bag, which was in my bag on purpose for this, for the, and I stabbed him in the hand. <laughs> it was the last time he did it. But it got to that point. I then had to look after myself. I had to be that little nutter mm. that would scream and shout and fight. And 
And once that beast is released, it's very hard to put away. Because now I've got no one looking after me. My mum is making me have a relationship with this man. And I'm doing it to please her. Because I want, I want my mum to love me. And you, you know, all kids, they will self-abandon. All children will self-abandon for their parents' love. They will do whatever it takes. It's the natural order of things. So I would do whatever she wanted, even though I knew she didn't love me. And I asked her once, I said, who do you love more, me or dad? And she went, your dad. And I knew it was blatant. Hmm. You know, this wasn't undercover. She loved my dad more than me and I would do anything to make her love me. So that meant that I had to have my own back as well because she was never going to do it. And that's where a lot of my, um, I say mental health problems, but yeah, my dysregulation, anger, self-harm, suicidal attempts, all of that came from no one gives a shit about me, I'm the problem. And don't forget there was a whole community of people that were buying into this. Why did Ella have to tell anyone about this? Couldn't she have kept it in the family? Do you think your mum knew what he was doing? She says not, but my dad was violent enough. So um, there was quite a few episodes where, if that's okay with you, for him to be that violent, then you're obviously turning a blind eye. She says she didn't know. I don't know how you don't know that. I have a daughter who's 16. I'm telling you now, I am, I mean, maybe I'm more hyper aware, but something's going on for her. I'm on it straight away. You know. What do do you believe? Do you believe your mum knew or do you think she didn't know? I want to believe her, but I do think she knew on some level. I want to believe her because I would rather think that she really didn't know, but I don't know how you wouldn't know because the way I was with my dad, I went from enjoying spending time with my dad to hating him, Mm. but not like being horrible to him. Clearly, like moodiness, you know, a child's behaviour will change when they're being sexually abused. If, if, if that abuser is a family member or someone visiting your house or a teacher, you will see that your child's behaviour changes. How do you not see? How do you not know when, when he walks in the room and I'm a bit like, yeah, I'm going now, go up to your room. Give, give your dad a kiss goodnight. No, 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 I don't do that anymore. Mm. You know, I would refuse those sorts of things. Now, you could put that down to... Kids grow out of giving their mum and dad a kiss. But it would have been like that. He's clearly a master manipulator. Yes. To have all of you in a, all of you in the visiting room, in yeah. the jail, knowing what he's in jail for. And he it's not like he's pleading his innocence. No. He's confessed to it, but I'm still going to get everybody back on side and yeah. I'm still going to be the dad that starts yeah. like being being the nurturer again yeah. Yeah, yeah. in writing. That's, uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, he definitely is a narcissist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be. Yeah, you have all to All the be. things that he's done... The catalogue of atrocities that he's uh, that he's committed, and then still to be pulling the strings. Wow! So when he gets released from jail, you're now what fourteen, fifteen? Uh, around that age, yeah, yeah. What was that like? Him coming back into the house, into the facility? It's now back as a family home with a convicted child sex offender. Yeah. Back head of the table. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want it, obviously. No. He moved to a bedsit. Um. He moved to a bedsit first and obviously had to get a job again and ended up working for a couple of factories and so on. And I think biding his time, because I think he knew, and my mum certainly knew that they were going to be back together. I was being groomed by my mum to accept that. And she That's why I say she's just as bad. 
And she could never understand this in all the arguments that we ever had and they were screaming matches. She could never understand that I would say you're just as bad because now you don't give a shit about me. You only care about the family staying together. And her line was always, well, I could have put you into care. And I, even then I was like, for what? what? Why would I go into care? I haven't done anything wrong. But that would be her line. I could put you into care. I didn't have to keep you. And so that in itself is manipulation. You will be grateful that you've got a roof over your head. Mm. You will be grateful that I haven't put you into care. And we are going to stay together as a family. So essentially, he moves back in and I knew it was going to go wrong again. I knew that it wouldn't take much because you just know that people don't change like that. Prison is not rehabilitation, by the way. And, and, and I want to caveat that by saying I think all paedophiles and all sex abusers deserve proper rehabilitation because we are never going to see the end of this if we do not rehabilitate and also get to the root of it before someone does become a sexual abuser. Um, and, and I'm not saying that they deserve it because poor them. I'm saying society needs it. This is such a difficult subject um, because people want to string them up. Okay, you could do that, but what about the little boy that's been sexually abused that was my dad, that hasn't had the support, that becomes the predator? We have to have a broader view of it. Anyway, so he comes back, um, and again, quite hazy over that time. I, I was not well at all. I was self-harming by that point, and that was my way of releasing it because I didn't have any control. Well, I'll tell you what, then, between the, between the ages of... 11 and 15, should we say. It's concrete that you've been sexually abused by your dad. He's confessed to it. He's in jail. There's no male figurehead of the house. Yeah. And you're with a mum that isn't doesn't sound particularly supportive. If anything, she's got your dad's side over yours. So tell me what happened over the course of those four or five years, because you must have spiralled out of control your mental health must have been shot to pieces. You must have felt absolutely lost in the world. Yeah, I was. And I was out a lot. I was drinking a lot. I was then um, raped at 13 by a 20-year-old, um, plied with drink and in, in, in the house. And um, a drink was knocked over. It was a glass of Coke. Drink was knocked over. I went to pick it up. He pushed me down and raped me. I left not understanding what that was, just thinking, I'm not going to tell anybody about this because I'm already being called a slag. I'm already being told everything's my fault. Ella shouldn't do this. Ella shouldn't do that. Don't want to go through that again. So I kept it to myself. My friend knew and her mum knew and her mum was a fully grown adult at this point. And I, th these are the only two people that knew at the time. And I was walking somewhere on my own, I was around 13, and her mum shouted slag at me across the road. And I was like, right, well, that's that sealed then. I'm definitely not saying anything now. So drinking more, I always used to say I was promiscuous. And actually, it's only recently that I've realised I was never promiscuous. I was the girl that was no boundaries. I didn't I didn't know how to handle life because I had no one guiding me. I had no one protecting me, no one looking up. Like I said, I looked after myself. So I would go to the park, get drunk, um, hang out with much older people. So it was, it was wild. And I think at school, 
it was noticeable I wasn't washing, wasn't looking after myself, I had no personal hygiene, um, didn't want to look at myself, didn't want to touch myself, didn't want to get in the shower, getting in the shower and, and seeing myself naked, I was just like, I couldn't bear it. Started my periods at 11, and I know this is TMI for a lot of people, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what I was supposed to do, because I had a really rubbish relationship with my mum at that point, and so I would... And this is a lot of information, but I think girls that have been through this need to hear this. I would just put sanitary towels on top of sanitary towels on top of sanitary towels because I didn't know what to do with the sanitary towels. So obviously I smelled. You know, it was just this awful, smelly, fat, angry, vulnerable little girl. And I had friends and stuff, but I don't... I remember giving stuff away to people, so... I could sense people were getting away from me. Um, my friends didn't really want to be my friends anymore after what came out. And, and and I would sense them slipping away from me and that people would didn't want me anymore. So I would give them stuff like, oh, this used to be my nan's ring. Hey, I have that. And you'll be my friend again. So I started to buy friendships. And You're desperate for love. Desperate. Oh, and that is that is the word. And that stayed with me for such a long time, that it, desperation. There's a big difference between liking enjoying the adulation wanting to be liked but there's a, the, to, to be desperate for love yeah. which is the most natural human emotion yeah there is to be desperate for it because you're obviously lacking it it's sad yeah that's really sad it is sad mm. and i spent a lot of time doing that um i had one really good friend and i think you might have seen on social media she died uh, a couple of weeks ago she was the only friend at the time that I really, we got each other. Um, and it was beautiful because we'd just laugh and joke and be silly. And she was a bit of a tough nut like I was. Mm -hmm. So we would be, you know, little tough nuts together. And just we just had the most beautiful, perfect friendship because there was no bullshit. There was no trying too hard. You know, I didn't have to do anything. She didn't have to do anything. We just got each other. And it was lovely. Uh, but apart from that, Everybody else was attached to my family as well. So if it wasn't at school, friendships at school, friendships outside school, they were all attached to my mum and my dad. And not all of them, but some of them were like, we need to pray for your dad. You know, your dad's really poorly. We've got to pray for him. And, you know, you're behaving in a way that's that's really not very good, Ella. You've got to, you've got to change. And that's because that's what they were hearing from their parents. So the friends that I had outside of school were all pretty much on on their side, mum and dad's side, and then the friends at school, their parents didn't want them to have anything to do with me because she's that girl that was sexually abused by her dad and she's a problem. So it was this weird, horrible situation. And yeah, I was desperate to be loved, desperate. And I think that's why I've always referenced promiscuity. Because I think as I got older, if, if an older boy paid me attention, I would be like, oh, great. You can do whatever you want to me because that might feel like love. Yeah, it seems to me when when you when you use the word promiscuous, I thought it sounds more like you're easy to take advantage of. Yes, you're definitely. Un, you're, yeah. you're vulnerable. Yeah, and not attractive. So if someone's showing me attention, I knew that I weren't going to get that anywhere else, and I was certainly wasn't going to get looked after. So any anything that felt like it could be attention or love, I would just be open to it, mm. and that's why you know. I was vulnerable to, to people plying me with alcohol. Never drugs, actually. Um, always alcohol. And I'm, I'm the sleepy drunk. So I'm very vulnerable when I'm drunk. And there was lots of boys that would do that, especially older boys. Well, that older boy that 
that raped you at that party. That shocked me because I, when you said a, an older boy, and I, well, uh, that's a man. Yeah, 20. Uh, 20 years of age, I was working the door, I was managing big, strong men, and I was looking after my mum. Mm -hmm. 20 year, years of age, you're a man. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's, he's raped a vulnerable little girl. But I was shocked that you'd said that you'd spilt a drink and then he just pounced on you and done it that way. I thought that would have been a grooming process because of the age. I mean, that really is in its finest definition. That's rape. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's, I mean, it, it all is. I'm, I'm not this, I'm not watering down any, any other form, mm. but normally there's some kind of process. That's outrageous. And this is something that young girls, young boys, in fact, everybody needs to be aware of it because it can go on and, you know, young young guns are out partying and raving and doing what else and having house parties when their parents are out and that can happen it does happen all the time yeah. i mean i've heard about it now now i do the job i do i hear these stories all the time i get i get some girls say do you think this is sexual assault and i'm a bit like mm, no i think your boundaries are really really bad and we need to work on them but when someone tells me I'm 13, this guy's 20, 21, 22, and you know he shoved me against a wall, do you think that's rape? Yes, that is rape. For a, legally, it's rape if nothing else, um, statutory rape. But yeah, so I was already a bit drunk. I knock over a drink. I'm like, oh god, sorry, fear straight away. Mm. And there was no grooming process, but. I used to go to the, where I lived, there was some little shops and you'd go there and, you know, hang around outside the shops. And he was there. His friend lived across the road from the shop. So he was a bit flirty and make it, you know, doing the, oh, you're right. Oh, you look pretty today. You know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't like there wasn't anything prior to that, but it wasn't like touching my leg or touching my shoulder. It was more, when I was drinking, actually, he had a key ring that had a condom in it. He went, look. And I was like, oh. Right, what's that? I, I don't know if you remember them. I don't know if they still do these I do theories. remember them, yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, whatever. He never used it, by the way. So that was obviously him just letting me know. But mm. I, didn't, I didn't think that because I was 13 and he was 20. I just thought he was an older boy. Um, and then, like I say, just held me down. I, I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing some very distasteful purple shell sock, no, I can't even say the word, shell suit bottoms. Um, and, and that was it, pull him down and did what he needed to do. And then it was just a bit like, get up then, you've got to go now. Go on, off you go. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and I walked home on my own in the dark. So, but that wasn't unusual for me. I, and I knew, again, I knew it was wrong, but I just thought, you're you're now conditioned oh, by that yeah. stage. Yeah. If that happened to somebody that hadn't experienced what you had previously, yeah. he could have been in some serious trouble. Well, this is the thing. Don't forget, when you're sexually abused and you go to school the next day and play in the playground with everybody else, you, you're good at turning it on and off. Mm. You can be like, oh, that's happened. Just got to crack on. And you just carry on the next day. You know, I'm playing tag in the playground after having been penetrated by my dad. So... This is no different to me. This is standard procedure. I, I'm programmed for this. Mm. Um, so that was the kind of years leading up to to my dad coming back out. And you said you were self-harming within that space as yes. well. Yes. Now, I remember when I was at school, so I'm 44, there was a few people that would do it with a compass. They'd have the scratch marks down. But now we're talking kids are bringing knives to school. Yeah. Like they need stitches, they're yeah. doing it in their leg, they're doing it parts of their body that can't be seen. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so that's beyond a cry out for help. Yeah. Now this is probably a good opportunity to, to discuss self-harm. It's really important. Mm. I spent so long. So mine was here, 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 legs. 
Um, and I, I mean, I would, if I don't have sleeves on even now, my arms will be turned down. Not that I'm embarrassed anymore, but I think it upsets other people, especially if they don't know your story and that you've got scars all over your arms. They're mm. a bit like, oh, that's uncomfortable. So it's for them more than me. Earlier on, it was more for me than them. Now it's for them. Um, so a couple of things I want to say about this, which I didn't know at the time, but I now know about self-harm, is it's a really good way to express anger if no one's listening and no one wants to hear. The fundamental problem that I have and have had my whole life is no one wants to hear. And if they do hear, they want to tell me that I'm wrong. So the only person that wasn't going to be able to answer me back was myself. I would sit having an argument with someone, having a bad day at school, having people say horrible things to me, whatever. And I'll just get a pair of scissors, hairdressing scissors at the time, because they were the sharpest ones. And I'll just slash my legs over and over again. And the tingling, because it wouldn't be that painful at the time, because of the mindset I was in, the tingling would just take me out of myself a little bit. In the same way that people beast themselves in the gym. Mm. You know, it's that it takes you out of this emotional pain and puts you into a physical pain. But also what I realised later on and now know is that when we bleed, we release dopamine. And dopamine is the addictive reward chemical, but it's also a motivation chemical. We release it because we're going to need to find survival. You know, we need to go and find that place to, to get safe. So when you cut, you also release blood, you also release dopamine, and that's where the addictive hook is. So you're getting to escape the emotional pain as well as getting the reward chemical. And it might not be a big, massive burst like it would be cocaine or other things, but it's enough. Mm. It's enough to remove you from that mindset. Um, and then I think, I'm trying to remember because my dad moved back in and then moved back out again. But on one occasion, I, I did that thing of taking loads of tablets. After an argument with my mum, I'd cut my legs, took loads of tablets, loads, um, and she came up in the room and she must have, hours later, I was unconscious and she must have seen my legs. And that was the first time anyone knew. And I think I was 15 then. Was it a genuine suicide attempt or a cry for help? I don't think any of my suicide attempts were genuine. How many was there? Uh, two. Yeah, I don't think they were. Suicidal ideations are still a thing for me. And this is, I would say, a fairly balanced, um, healthy mind now. But sometimes I still find the fantasy of suicide alluring because it's the easiest way to think of any pain stopping. And I'm just saying that to be completely honest because I wouldn't want anyone to listen to this and think, oh, she's completely healed. Mm. I am healed to, I think, the best place I've ever been. But I'm also honest, like we are human. And we have dark thoughts and some people have dark thoughts that they want to hurt other people. I happen to have dark thoughts that I want to hurt myself. The, the addiction of self-harm is real. I still want to do it. Still in it. But I don't do it. When was the last time you did hurt oh, yourself? It's got to be 20 years ago. Oh, good. So it's a long, long time. But it's a bit like smoking. I used to smoke and after a meal, you'd have a little cigarette. I still fancy a cigarette after a meal. I just don't do it. Mm. It doesn't completely go away. And I want to make sure people know that. But... The self-harm got worse and worse and worse after that because when she saw it, she did feel a bit sad, I think. I don't know how sad. But I remember saying, are you going to tell anyone about this? Because this is where, this answers your question about the suicide attempt. And she was like, oh, I don't think so, no. 
I'm not, I don't think so. I don't think we should tell anyone about this. So now the cutting doesn't matter. The fact that I've taken, I don't know, 25 paracetamol doesn't matter. I'm throwing my guts up, obviously, because that's what it does. And you can create liver damage. It's not a great idea. Um, it doesn't matter. So now I've got to up my game. I'm going to have to cut a little bit deeper. And I'm going to have to keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you could become desensitized to it. So I, I stopped telling her as well. She, she didn't care. And if she did care... She didn't want anyone else to know about it, so she didn't care enough. So it became a secret again. Because that when I was on my own doing it, um, it was just me and, and my arms or me and my legs. And it was just, a, it, weirdly, it was a safe place for me to express anger. Nobody, no expectations. If I expect you to help me and you let me down, now that's going to hurt even more. So I'll just do this as a secret. Uh, and then, obviously, as I was getting older because of the emotional dysregulation I kept doing it and doing it and then it would be as a reaction in an argument and that's when it became toxic because that's when I'm the manipulator mm. now I know oh if I do this you're going to shut the fuck up and you're going to listen to me because this is the only but the fact is that's how I felt I had to be to get anyone to listen to me I felt I had to bleed before someone would say oh god I didn't realise you were hurting so that's when it became a tool for getting people to listen your mum has got a lot to answer for. Yeah. She should have listened to you. Yeah. She should have heard you. Yeah. And this will be more for the parents because no one 14, 15 is going to tune into this, but there'll be, a, there'll, be, there'll be people our age that have got teenage children that will be watching this thinking, my kid's self-harming, what do I do? What do I do? How do I make sense of it? I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. It is nuts. First, and sad. And very sad because a child's only doing that because they don't feel like they're being listened to. That's the sad bit. Or they're competing for attention somehow, which again, children aren't, you know, I used to get called an attention seeker all the time. Well, you're just attention seeking. I'd be like, yeah, I fucking am. Guess what? Because no one gives a shit. So this is the only way I can be seen. Um, so when kids are doing it, yes, they are attention seeking, but it's not in the way that people frame it. They need something from you. They're kids, for God's sake. Mm. Stop putting these stupid labels onto children. They haven't got the ability to think straight yet. Um, before I answer that question, it's really important. Prefrontal cortex, this part of the brain, starts to fuse at seven. It's not fully fused until at least 21 years old. So teenagers don't have the ability to analyse, be logical, decision-making. They're very creative, but their creativity is not balanced by analysis and logic. So that's why teenagers are on the whole knobheads, because they haven't got that ability to play it all out properly with all the balanced things they need. That's why they'll do these, you know, crazy behaviours, be it, you know, fighting, cutting, even knife crime. Boys at 15 that stab someone else at 15, they haven't been able to think that through properly. You think, well, of course you fucking know what you're doing. They don't, not in the same way that we do. So you have to bear in mind that children haven't got that ability. Um, if a parent's struggling to hear their child or to and not be cross, because a lot of parents get angry rather than, you know, they don't, that they're so scared of what their child's doing, get their child to write you a letter. You know, say, look, you're going to struggle to explain this to me. I want you to write it down for me. Write it down, and then we're going to do whatever it takes to help. That's all the child needs. If you then take action, don't punish them, don't belittle them, don't humiliate them, don't keep saying, why? Why do you do it? They don't know. I know now, and I'm trying to give the context now, but I didn't know then. I thought I was mental 
I thought I was crazy. I thought I was the monster. And that's what a lot of children will think. They think that, you know, they're being driven by, you know, the devil or they think that they're, something's in them. That it can't make, especially with things like TikTok now where there's all this sort of, um, you've seen a lot of kids getting that kind of religious OCD stuff because they're seeing all these messages about good and bad and evil. So now they're, they're getting their information from people that aren't qualified on the internet and they've already decided what they are. So don't ask them why, get them the help. That's the most important thing. Get them to write it down so that you as the parent can process the information slowly. Don't try and get to the solution straight away. Process it, talk to people about it, reach out to organisations or therapists, have a phone call and then go to the child and say, this is what we're going to do. And that really is helpful. Uh, so back to your dad coming back from jail. So from 11 to 15, you was lost, drunk, you had another traumatic sexual experience, which you didn't ask for. So by the time your dad's come back to the family home, you're probably in a worse place than you ever were before. Yeah. And now you've got to welcome y your dad back that you didn't even want there. So yeah, from there on, how did your life play out? So to be fair to him, maybe the manipulator, but he was very remorseful, very sorry. So the one thing I got from my dad that I've never had from my mum, is an apology. Now, that's not to say she hasn't said the word sorry. She just hasn't said it with any meaning. So it's been like, oh, sorry, you know, whereas my dad would break down and cry. And I don't like seeing men cry. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but for me personally, it makes me cry. <laughs> so when he cried, I was a bit, you know, I felt like, oh, he means it. And I think he did on some level. And I think he does. I mean, I don't think he ever wanted to hurt me. I think there was a part of him that did that. And I have to remember that in, in all people where there's really disturbed parts of a character, you can also find something beautiful within them. And I think my dad's vulnerability in that moment was quite beautiful for me. So there was a level of me being able to understand him and see that he was genuinely sorry. And I, I genuinely thought, OK, I don't want this, but I think he's going to try and I think this is going to be OK. And it wasn't long after that that he was violent again. Um, got to Boxing Day and I think I was in the middle of GCSEs, which I did quite well in actually, despite all of this shit going on. Um, and it was, it was a lot of people in the house. So this was in front of lots of guests and my brother was playing with our dog at the time. And my brother was quite annoying at times and he would keep making a growl. And I've got this thing with noise and I think it's a trauma thing. I can't stand certain noises and the growl of a dog really makes me quite anxious and it's not I mean I have actually been bitten by a dog later on but it's not because of that it was there's a, there's a bassy sound that makes me go into fight flight and I, I don't know what it is but anyway that was happening I kept saying mum can you tell Tom to stop doing that it's my brother and she was like mm, stop it she didn't like it if I moaned about anything like that I couldn't I say moan, but if I was upset about it, she couldn't, she could not stand me being upset. So I'll leave him alone, he's all right. And, and I kept thinking, what? Yeah, but the dog's not all right. The dog's annoyed. I think that's what it was. I think that's the sound that was annoying me is because he was teasing her and my dad was a tease. You know, the, the people that tickle you for too long and, and then you beg them to stop mm -hmm. and, and winding, you know, picking on you. Well, it goes back to control. Control. Again. 
teasing you all the time, teasing you all the time. My brother was doing that to the dog. So I think this is the problem. My dad's sitting there. My brother's in the middle. My mum's sitting there. And, and I'm, I'm feeling for the dog. And I'm, yeah, but can you just tell him to stop? So I'm hypersensitive to it. That Now I'm recording the story. That's what it is. And, and she wouldn't. So in the end, I said something like, can you tell him to stop? He's pissing me off now. With that, my dad leapt out of his chair. He grabbed me by the back of the head, by my hair, pulled me in through the room, into the hallway. And he was on top of me. And then my sister jumped on top of him and we caught the fist on our face. Next thing I know, I, don't, I, black, I black out. I don't know what's going on. And then I wake up and I'm I wake up to myself screaming. So I'm screaming, screaming, screaming. And my mum's going, Ella, shh, shh. Because I think she thinks it's going to wind my dad up, who's nowhere to be seen at this point. And then he's blacked out, I think, upstairs. He'd been drinking, so he'd blacked out. And I can't stop screaming. Like I, I literally, I know I should stop. Everything's telling me if I don't stop, he's going to come back down. But I can't stop screaming. I don't even remember what's happened after that. So had your dad knocked you clean unconscious? It must have done. Because I, I, I can't remember. that. There's the there's the, the feel of the the fist on, on our face, on my face and her face. And it, some, he's on top of me, then my sister's... I, and then I can't remember anything. And then I hear myself screaming. So... And this is, there's a house full. And recently, a friend of mine who was there, he's a couple of years older than me, his mum said to, to him, do something about it. And he's 16 or something at the time. And he's like, oh, what the, f how I can't do anything about this. So there's, there's adults there asking children to intervene. Noise, mess. And then before I know it, it's just deathly silent. And I'm leaving the house and staying. That woman who told her son to interview, I'm, I'm in their house. So everything's a blur. And I know at this point, this is it now. Like, surely this is never going to happen again. A year later, I moved out. But within that time, he did move back in. So I had an argument with my mum and I wanted to, you know, I told you I wanted to make her love me. So after an argument with my mum, after that incident, I said he could move back in and he moved back in. And I only said that to her because I wanted, I wanted her to be, I wanted her to love me. And when I said he could move back in, she didn't even look up at me. She was reading a newspaper at the time and she just went, OK. So it was, it, I realised at 16, I thought, this is, this is never going to change. Oh, God, no. I mean, what, what was your dad had to have done before your mum said enough? I know. He was clearly very damaged, troubled, narcissistic. You, you can't deny that. But she, she, she's well-liked or was well-liked, and I think still is. People that didn't know, that weren't around at that time, that met us later on. Oh, isn't your mum lovely? She's spunky, she's this, she's that. Well, they wear different hats, narcissists. Yeah, they do. They, uh, they, the hat they wear out in public is very different to the yeah. one they wear at home. Yeah. Her, her whole... And they're not even similar. No, you're right. You're right. That side of her that I see, none of her friends will have seen. Although, weirdly, when she falls out with a friend, which doesn't happen very often because she doesn't want the mask to slip. Mm -hmm. So every now and then she'll fall out with someone. There's only two that I can recall. One she was friends with for about 25 years and then one she was friends with for nearly 50 years. When she falls out with them, she befriends someone close to them. So one woman, she's befriended this woman's best friend. And then the other woman, she befriended her sister-in-law or her cousin, one of the two. And I'm like, how, is, how are people not seeing this? 
Because I'll say, I think my mum's a narcissist. And even the friends will say, oh, I don't think she's a narcissist. How do you not see this? Mm. People refuse to see it. People don't understand it because it's extremely complex. I mean, it's narcissism, narcissist. It's a fashionable word on the internet. Yes. And people just think that if someone loves their reflection or they're too big for yeah, them, yeah, they're, they're a narcissist. But the actual true definition of a narcissist is extremely sinister and extremely damaging yeah. given the opportunity given the, given an inkling given an inroad yeah they will wreck you without you even realizing it yeah they do and wreck you that's exactly what happened um and i know and i was a wreck and i was open to vulnerability after that and you move out at 16 i went into a bed sit i didn't have any money you know all sorts of things can go wrong because you're a child. Now, I know I'm 45, so going back then, I think, you know, women were still having babies really young. So I talk about being children, but you can, you can have a baby at 16. You know, that's not illegal. Um, but I do look at that now. My daughter is 16. She can't even butter her own toast. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's taken it a bit far. But she could not do what I did. And I'm not saying I would want her to, by the way. I mean, she's staying with me for as long as possible. Mm. But I bet she is. Yeah, she's not going anywhere, whether she likes it or not. But, you know, she, I, I would look after her till till my mind gives up on me. You know, there's no way that she will ever have to go through anything like that. Which, by the way, isn't always a good thing either. Because, you know, kids do need to learn the hard way sometimes. They do need resilience. But, yeah, it was, it, it was at a point where there was a pub right, well two minute walk down the road a squash in the pub was 26p the electric meter took 50p i didn't have enough to put well it was gas and electric actually i didn't have enough to heat the flat or to put the lights on so i'd go and sit in the pub and have a squash instead so that's the way i lived and how old was you then that was i was 16 17 18 um i'd get free food from from the restaurant next door not that i asked for it but they obviously could see that i was skint um, and then at 17, I was raped again. Um, and that was partly stupidity, but also it was kind of like the final, one of the final straws, I think. I didn't stop, I didn't stop self-harm after that, but it was a, it was another moment where I just thought, you're going to have to change something in yourself, Ella. This is, this is now, this is now the moment is you're going to, you're going to kill yourself or be killed. Or you're going to make something of your life. What happened the third, well, the second or third rape, depending on how you define rape. Was, yeah. What, so you're, you're 17 and you're raped again. Yeah. So I, I go to a nightclub and at this point I'm not, you know, I'm looking after myself a bit better. I'm still overweight then, but I was certainly, I was quite a good looking overweight girl at that point. But I've grown up with boys finding me quite repulsive. So I never talk to a guy, and still to this day, this is ne never in my head, I never talk to a guy and go, oh, he fancies me. I, I think we're going to be friends, especially at that age. I think we're just mates. So I'm in a, in a nightclub and we're talking, having a good laugh. I don't see myself as flirtatious. Other people might disagree, but this is my perception of myself, remember. So I don't think I'm flirting. I think we're just having a good time. And he's like, oh, which way are you going? I said, oh, I'm going this way. I'm going to go across the park. And he said, oh, I live that way. I'll walk with you. So I was like, oh, cool. Anyway, we get to this place in the park where there's like an opening where you can go one way and then I would keep going that way. And he went, do you know what? Should we just get a cab? 
this is the time before mobile phones. So it's a phone box. So we've seen a phone box. It seems completely legitimate that he'll go and call a cab to me next door to a pub. So I said, yeah, all right then. So he goes, wait there, I'll go and get a cab and then I'll drop you off and I'll, I'll go because I'm a bit further than you. So I said, okay, cool. So he comes back, he goes, yeah, he's coming in a minute. So we're just standing there and then a guy comes along and it's his friend. And I'm like, oh, I don't see a cab. And I, I go, oh, where's the cab? And he went, oh no, he's going to take us. And so I start to walk away. So wh where this opening is, there's this wall. It was a white wall at the time. And I'm going to try and go on the path past the wall. And then they grab me, push me against the wall. I've got a skirt on. And both of them rape me and hold my head up against the wall. And I, I'm not even trying to struggle. And, and this is the one thing that I think people think about rape. Every single time I've been sexually abused, every single time I've been raped, I have never screamed. I've gone into freeze mode. I just take it. I just wait for it to be over. Everybody thinks what they see in the film happens. You scream, you fight them. You... I didn't. I just thought, hopefully this will be over quick. So I, I, there was a little bit of a struggle. They pushed my head against the wall. I can feel a hand on my face, you know, to the side. And I just let it happen. And again, for that reason, I didn't compute that it was rape. Because I thought, you've met this guy in a nightclub. You've been stupid enough to walk through a park. You've waited for this guy to turn up. Although I thought it was a taxi, obviously. I've been stupid enough to think that he's going to get a taxi. The guy comes, his friend. I don't run. I don't scream. I don't shout. I've let it happen. It's me being promiscuous. So I walked home on my own, got into bed and carried on the next day. And that was one of the things that just made me think, you'll have to book your ideas up here. I'm not saying I suddenly healed, but I started to think differently about myself. I started to realise that this can't keep happening. Even though at the time I thought it was me being promiscuous, mm -hmm. I still wanted to change something. And that's when I started to be a bit more curious. It didn't really all fall into place till much later, but I started to think I need this to stop. and. That was the beginning of, I guess, where I am now. Being exploited, being taken advantage of, sexually abused from strangers and people that, that are supposed to look out for you. Obviously, there's going to be trust issues there. I don't even need to ask that. But has has it affected your relationships yeah. with, with men yeah. throughout? Yeah. In what way? I was massive people pleaser. Um that stayed with me for a really long time. I just, like like you said earlier, I was desperate to be loved. So I would take the scraps of love that I could get. Um, and, and also the thing that I've been very good at my whole life is putting a mask on. So I'm really good at, and was really good at, didn't matter how badly you treat me, I'll understand you. One of the things that serves me well as a psychotherapist is that I'm so intrigued and curious and compassionate. Um, doesn't matter what someone's done, I will find a way to be compassionate so that I can then help them to be a better version of themselves. Now, in a professional setting with boundaries, that's super cool. Like you, you are going to be a master at your job. But in relationships, you know, it's not the best way to be. Oh, let me be curious about you and let me com be compassionate about you. And then if you do something bad to me, 
cheat on me or, or, or you know, say horrible things to me, I'm going to make I'm going to be able to work out why you're doing that. And I'm going to be able to help you to be a better version of yourself. And then what happens is they don't give a fuck. They don't care about whether you're helping them or not. They're going to take whatever they can from you. And then when they're finished with you, off you go. So that's not to say that every relationship I've ever had has been horrible, but there was a lot of me learning. Let's put it that way. There was a lot of lessons that I needed to learn. And I had to go through quite a lot of pain. And that's where this, that's where I said to you earlier, I would become quite toxic then. So I'm going to try and fix you. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to be that woman that most men are frightened of <laughs> because she's going to do everything for you. She's going to give you the world. And then when you aren't giving it to her after a prolonged period of time, she's going to self-harm and she's going to lose her mind. And now you're responsible for that mess. And that's where I would say um, there was some... I've spoken about this recently. I could be the monster too. I could lash out too, predominantly at myself. And I, I, I was horrible at times because, but I tried to be so nice and I tried to be so good and I tried to be so loving in the hope that I was going to get some back. And then when I didn't get it, and it would be a prolonged period of time or if you were pushing my buttons, you know, poking the bear too much, okay, now we're going to go there. And that, that, that's the sort of situation where I'd have to be stitched up. And, you know, I think they were shocked because, again, it was a bit like how I felt with, with my dad. I didn't see it coming. And I think they felt like that. But you're, you're this nice little girl. This isn't you, you fucking psychopath. Get out. And, of course, it never works. You can't just go and cut yourself or tell them you're going to kill yourself and hope that they're going to love you. It doesn't work. So I went through a bit of that. Um... And then now I'm much more settled and much more balanced and, you know, those things aren't an issue. But I think when you've had very little support, because there was no counselling, there was no social services, there was no parents, there were people that were trying to help but they'd be making it worse because they would also be friends with mum and dad. And so um, I was on my own and I had to go through all of that. I had to learn. And I'm not suggesting it's a good way to, to get to a balanced, healthy place in relationships with your children or anything, but that was the route I had to go. And because of that, here I am now, fully understanding, you know, if someone sits and says to me, look, I'm deeply ashamed to admit this, I can actually say, look, I get it. I've been there. I'm not going to judge you. I understand what you need because I know what I didn't get and I know that's exactly what you need to and we're going to work on that together. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a rainbow at the end of all of this for anyone that's going through it. But you also have to be willing to be self-reflective and introspective. You also have to be willing to pay it forward. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be honest. You know, you have to say, yeah, I was that dickhead that cut myself to get someone to love me or to get someone to see me. I was that person that, you know, I was that person that did horrible things. I, I could be the monster. I could lash out. I could be cruel at times. And it doesn't excuse it. I'm not trying to excuse me being that way. But that is the truth. So there's there's good and bad in everybody. And if you push someone's button for long enough, you're going to see it. I think this is a good takeout for 
for most people, really, because we're very absorbed of ourselves, aren't we? Yeah. But I think the first port of call in most situations should be look inward. So when you was going through your monster phase, mm. did you have, well, it sounds like you did, but just, just to satisfy my curiosity, would you be mindful that you're being perhaps manipulative, controlling, narcissistic? Would you be aware of that and address it? Would you, but would you not like who you were? I hated who I was. I despised who I was. I thought I was the most disgusting human being ever. To the point where I, I, I mean, I, I, felt, I felt that physically and mentally. So I would have fantasies about chopping myself up, um, you know, because I, I kind of wanted everyone, in my mind, this sounds a bit strange, I guess, but in my mind I wanted everybody to see the monster that I was because I couldn't, I couldn't express it. I was masking so much of the time. So I can say it now, but then I was trying to be the good girl, trying to be the people pleaser, trying to mask all the pain and all the anger, mainly anger by that point. Um, so I didn't want to say, oh, actually, I'm a monster. So, so I thought if I, if I make myself look ugly and, and vile, then people will see it and I don't have to keep this pretense up anymore. So... Having body dysmorphia at the time, because actually I must say during that time I went from being very overweight to very underweight as well. So I'd lost, a, you know, eating disorders were a thing and I was tiny. I mean, I must have got down to about, I, th I was wearing clothes for 11 year olds. So I was really small. More self-harm. Yeah, exactly that. Literally starving myself. I, can, I would only eat certain vegetables and certain fruits and that would be it. Um, and I was petrified to put the weight back on. But equally, I didn't really like being thin because I was so different. I looked so different and I felt like people were looking at me more, which made me feel more grotesque. And that's when I would have fantasies about, right, and I know this sounds awful, but I think if I can cut off a breast or, or cut off a bit of skin, then when people look at me, they'll be like, ugh. And, and that would represent how I felt in my head. So... I was doing it the wrong way around. I was trying to balance out my internal perception with what the external was because I was sick of pretending. So this is this is still me trying to make sense of, of the two parts. Well, there's probably more than two parts, but this grotesque version of me and then this lovely, pretty kind of masking it all and being everyone's best friend. But because I wasn't very good at being truthful or honest, I, I, I felt like I needed to show people. Um, and so I, I was so aware of them manipulating them as well. I was aware, as I said from the beginning, I, I think I've always been hyper aware of everything. And I hated it. I hated that I couldn't just say, can you help me, please? I hated that. I hated that I couldn't be that person because I was scared of rejection. Every time I'd ever asked for anything from anyone, especially the people that were supposed to care, I mean, if your mum and dad are going to do that, who, you know, your mate in the pub's not going to care. Why would they care if your mum and dad don't care? So I couldn't say, can you help me? Mm. And this is where I can relate to a lot of men when they say, I can't ask for help. I can't be vulnerable. I, I get what they mean because I felt that way. So then I knew I would have to use these tactics to get people to see that I was in pain because that's all I was ever trying to do. But it was manipulative. And so then if I'm going to... If I'm going to push you or punch you in the face because you've not heard me, what the fuck am I turning into here? I couldn't stop it. Because by the time you're that dysregulated and you're that wild animal, now all you've got is shame. So guilt and shame were the two things that stayed with me for a really long time.
it's amazing how a negative trait like manipulation can quite easily be converted into a positive trait Definitely. like persuasion. Yeah. Because you've now switched that and you now persuade people yeah. to live a better life and be yeah. happier in themselves and sort of re rewire them to believe in who they are and yeah. you, you help them heal, but you've got to persuade them to do that. And yeah. manipulation and persuasion, they're cousins, aren't they? They are. And actually, I say EMGR and clinical hypnotherapy, the two other tools I use as well as the talking, they are positive manipulation. I always say that. I'm very honest with people. I say, I know you're not going to like this because this word is often used in a different context. This is you positively manipulating your own brain now mm. so that you have a better outcome. Because you've got two choices. You can live in the past memories, which are real, or we can create the future and embed that as a memory so that your brain is now going on that sat-nav rather than the past sat-nav. And that's all it is, neural, neural wires. You can convince your brain that you are anything you want to be. I now feel, um, and this has been work, by the way, full of love. Like I love so much because I always think, I might not see you again. So if we say goodbye today and I never see you again, I'm going to say goodbye to you as though it's the last time I'm ever going to see you. Obviously, I'll see you on social media, but you know what I mean. And and that's really powerful when you when you come from that place. Like everything is done through love. Before everything was done through hiding and repressing and masking. Now who I appear to be, very similar to what you say, I'll be completely honest with you, take it or leave it, but this is who I am. And can I sometimes still lose my temper and become dysregulated? Of course. But now those periods of time are much, much shorter. I don't self-harm. I want to. I don't take tablets or anything stupid like that. I think about it, but that's just a thought and I accept it as a fleeting thought. So when I work with people, I'm very honest about that too. You're, you're never going to get rid of that mechanism, but you're going to know how you manage it and you're going to live in this future false memory because that's a better place to be. You know, if you're going to live in a matrix, you may as well design it. Mm. And that's that's kind of where people come on board with it and go, okay, let's try this. And that that is such a a powerful thing to be able to do as a job. And I work very long hours and all of that, but I don't think anyone else has got the job that I've got. I don't think anyone else, even if they're in my field, I don't I don't think there's any other therapist or practitioner that is as lucky as me. They, they do not have what I have, which is it's a privilege to work with people and to be able to get the person that was me, sometimes not as severe, sometimes more, very often more severe. You know, there are these stories. I work with some people that have been in situations that most people will never even be able to wrap their heads around. And to be able to get them from where they are to a place where they believe in themselves and they've got hope again, that's magic. I, I don't feel like it's me that does it, by the way. I had a, a recently on my own podcast, I had a lady come on, she's an artist and she paints. And she put this into really good perspective. She said, yes, it's me holding the paintbrush, but it's not me coming out on the paper. That's like another consciousness. It comes through me. And that's how I kind of feel about the work that I do as well. What you do. Yeah, it's mm. not me. It's something bigger than that. I'm just a vessel for it. And, and where people say, you have helped me so much, I hate it. I despise and I don't like I don't even like it when people say I help people because that's the ego. I don't help anyone. I'm the vessel. I've just got this neural 
wiring and this I'm full of love, the energy of love, and somehow that comes through me and they pick up on it. It's all energy. Well, this may be useful information or, or input. When you said about men, they struggle to show vulnerability. There's a lot of happy looking men that are very unhappy. I know. And I know. they, uh, a lot of them do lean on me and I feel privileged that, that they, they trust in me. Just like you sitting here, like yeah. I, it's very much a privilege to have someone trust me so much that they will just tell me things yeah. that they wouldn't normally tell somebody else yeah. or they wouldn't know where to turn. And I've got to say, there is something in you because I've never gone to this level of detail before, ever, on anyone's podcast or even even my nearest and dearest don't know those details. So there is something in you that cultivates that safe space. So just to give credit to you, actually. No, I appreciate that. You might that. take it for granted sometimes because you're so used to it. So It's the part of me that I like. Yeah. I'm happy that I've got that because... Selfishly, or rightly or wrongly, that gets me to sleep at night knowing that I've done something good for someone that needed it and deserved it. So going back to men struggling to show their vulnerability, mm. I think it also comes down to the person they're showing their vulnerability to. Someone that's just been to university and got all their qualifications in psychology, they know the theory. Mm. You would never ever catch me sitting there spilling my heart out to them. And they could sit there and say, oh, you're struggling to be vulnerable, you're, you're, you're tight, you're boxed up. And I would probably... Be brutally honest and say, you're not qualified to, yeah. to, deal, to deal with me. Mm. You get someone like you that's lived it, breathed it, been there, seen it, done it and overcome it. It's like, okay, you're qualified. Mm. Even if you hadn't been to university, mm. the words you use, it's like, okay, well, you're qualified to understand that mm. then. And yeah, the school of life, that would be, that'll be any, be any degree mm. for me. So uh, yeah, there's no wonder... I was going to use, I was going to say unique selling point, your USP, but I don't yeah. think that's the right word. But I think that's where you will have the edge over other people because, yeah, I mean, real sees real, doesn't it? And, uh, yeah, it does. This is my vulnerability. This is why you're safe here. One of the reasons I started to put it out there a bit more and wrote the book was because there was always this thing in my training when I did the psychotherapy training, which is many years ago now, 20 odd years ago, or around about that, um, and they they sort of say, you, you need to be a blank canvas because this is about the person, not about you, which is true. It's absolutely true, but exactly what you said, if you don't know that it's safe to go to some of the levels, you know, people tell me in graphic detail what happens to them or what they're thinking. And I've had people that have been accused and found innocent of sexually abusing family members that have trusted me. And that is a privilege. Uh, when someone has been cleared unanimously by a jury of sexually abusing a sister or a loved one, and I've known that they haven't done it, because you can tell. You can tell. When you've been abused, there are things that you pick up on in people. So it is about putting the story out there, not only for people that will never be able to afford therapy, because people can't always afford therapy, that's the truth, and the services that are out there, there's many, many good people work within those services, but they're stretched and they can't, they can't work the way I can. I'm private practice, so I can be creative and I can work really specifically like in a bespoke way for you or for whoever is in front of me. Um, but not everyone can afford therapy. Not everyone can even begin to talk. They don't, they don't know how, that's what's so good about EMGR and clinical hypnotherapy. I only need to know very basic details to be able to do that work. You don't have to spill your guts out. You know, you can just go, I want to reprocess this. I want to feel better. If you can't do that, you need to be able to hear people talking about it. But not just people that have been through it, 
because sometimes that can be like the hopeless story where there's no there's no possible outcome whereas when you've done you've lived the experience you've done the work and you're now a therapist yourself you can tell the story from three different parts and I think that's why I started to do it so most often people know a little bit about the story before they come to me um, and if they don't already you know I might direct them to something and say look I'm not gonna this is your time but I think it might help you to know that I get it so here's something you can watch or something you can read um, and I'm sharing it with you because I want you to know you're safe and that helps them then to to open up and to go right okay I can really go there because what's the point if you're not going to I, I totally agree. Yeah. And it's the, and it's an exchange. Mm. It's an honest exchange. Yeah. And a lot of people that are troubled, I think they've they've lacked honesty in their life. Yeah. So if you start on the right foot, this is going to be brutally honest, but I'm sure it will help heal. Yeah. And uh, where can people find your book? So that's on Amazon. It's called Wounded Warrior Wisdom. Or you can go straight to my website, which is www.ellamacrystal.com. And you've got an actual practice in... Northampton. Northampton. But I do work online as well. I will say to anyone listening, if they do want to work with me, there's always a three month waiting list. So just brace yourself if you do want to work with me. Um, and I work online. So Zoom or for the EMDR, we use a particular platform. So I can I work all over the world, basically, but based in Northampton for face to face. And you've been practicing for how long? Uh, 20 years. 20 years in the game. Lived it, breathed it, knows it, understands it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're doing a good thing. Is there anything else you want to say to anybody listening that you may think could help in any way, shape or form? You've been there, I've been there, to the darkest of the dark places where there feels like there's no hope. And I'm not saying hope is a choice, but I'm saying that if you put that ahead of you, if you just focus on something ahead, and this is where I say about creating the false memory, design an alternative to there is no hope. It might just be that, okay, what if I plan to go on a holiday? Or what if I plan to go and see that mate from school that I've not seen for 10 years? Have an intention ahead of you always, because that might be the only thing that keeps you going. When I said to you after that third rape, well, my dad, then the two rapes, after that, that happened, I started to think about... Maybe I could just, and I know this sounds crazy and I'm not there yet, but maybe I could be a multimillionaire one day. Maybe that's what I'll do because I reckon I could work that out somehow. And that was the thing that has kept me going, like to be able to create generational change, positive change for my own daughter and to be able to give her a life that I never had. I didn't have her at the time and I didn't know I was going to have her, but there was always something that was like, I'm going to change this to a point where nothing can ever take it away from me, which is why I went into self-employment. You know, it's why I bought the clinic. It's why I run the, the clinic. It's why I do the podcast. It's why I do everything. It's and, and I'm starting up a training school and all these different things so I can work with other therapists to get them on this level, you know, to work with them on, on, on the same things that we've spoken about today. Bring the lived experience into your practice. Use these methods in a way that will help people, not just make them feel like there's no hope. Because often... The therapist will say, you know, there's 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 very little I can do here, but I'm going to create the safe space. You've got to do the work yourself. I'm saying, no, as a therapist, you need to work harder than them because they're not in a position to do that. So it's all about hope and it's all about setting the intention and everything will lead on to something else. If you have no hope, create a false memory for the future. 
live there. Your neural pathways, if you visualize it every day, will literally wire around that false memory until it becomes automatic and part of the subconscious. So do that, if nothing else, every single day, think about the biggest dream that you can think of, wire it in by visualizing it every single day. And if you can't visualize it, however you imagine, be that through sensing it, hearing it, whatever it is, could be a car, it could be a house, it could be anything. Over and over and over and over again, it will become your reality. What a great final message. And I'm gonna make sure that your Instagram tag is put in the description. Uh, I encourage anybody that watches this to follow Ella. You can see there's, there's a plethora of knowledge and wisdom in there. And uh, a wise woman once said, where there's pain, there's power. Yes. I believe that was you. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> You've done your homework. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for putting your trust in me. Thank you. Much appreciated.